Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation, chapter 20. Last week, we looked at the first six verses of Revelation 20. They've been considered the most difficult verses in Revelation, if not the entire Bible. As one writer put it, without question, one of the most problematic of passages, not only in the book of Revelation, but in the entire New Testament, is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. And follow along, if you would, as I read these verses again today. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. In this passage, we see an angel coming down from heaven with a great chain, with a key. He ties up the dragon and throws him into the abyss. Those who are seated on thrones reign with Christ. And then we read of the first resurrection and the second death. To summarize briefly what we saw last week, what it, John is speaking about here is as a result of divine action, Satan is limited in his power to, see, to deceive the nations, meaning that the gospel of the Lamb of God could go forth throughout the world. The going forth of the gospel is expressed in terms of reigning. We read of reigning with Christ. And those who reign with Christ are both those of the Old Covenant and those of the New Covenant. And how long this will be, this time in which the gospel can go forth, Easily or with, without Satan hindering it, uh, without him deceiving the nations anymore. We're not, it's ex- expressed as a thousand years, but we believe it to be an extended period of time. And at the, period, at the end of this period of time, Satan will be set free for a short time. Now, we've just read these verses, and you might say, well, Damon, that's very interesting, but I certainly didn't see that in those verses. And I think a certain frustration can set in as we study the book of Revelation where one might well ask, why doesn't God simply speak plainly? Why all the symbolism? Why not simply give us the facts, speak in terms of proposition rather than symbols? Why not just give us the facts? And I thought today that for the majority of our time together in the sermon, we would review a bit what we've seen in the book of Revelation. Um, We've been in it for a while, over six months now, and we're coming down to the end. And these are things that we've talked about as we've gone through our study, but perhaps we have forgotten them. And and I think if, if, if we sort of recover them, they will keep us on track as we continue our study. 
The first thing, I think the problem that we have in understanding the book of Revelation and perhaps the rest of Scripture, uh, but certainly a passage like this, is that there is an assumption that the difficulty is simply a matter of plainness. If God would speak plainly, I would get it. I would understand it. And, and some people, I think, get very frustrated because they wish, don't do the poetry, don't do the symbolism, just tell me what's going to happen. And I think that this attitude um, ignores or at least neglects some important things that we've talked about as we've gone through. The first is the place of revelation, which we talked about several weeks ago. The fundamental presupposition of the Christian faith is revelation. That is, that we cannot know things unless God reveals them to us. It isn't simply a matter of IQ or of intellect. It requires that God would reveal these things to us. We can't simply observe and say, Ah, oh, yes, I see now there is a heaven, there is a hell, and God sent his Son. No, these are things that have to be revealed to us. We cannot know them on our own. Secondly, revelation is not about what, it is about who. It is about God. It is the revelation of who God is. Oftentimes we think in terms of revealed truths, dogma, theology, facts. When in fact revelation is the revealing of God, who God is. And then we saw that revelation takes place in history. It is seen in terms of historical events. Supremely in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And today, at the end we will have the Lord's Supper, and this recalls a historical event. That 2,000 years ago, about that, in a specific place on this planet, in Palestine, there was a man who instituted what we now know as the Lord's Supper. I think an attitude that says, if God would only speak plainly, I would get it, also ignores the work of the Spirit. You see, not only did the Holy Spirit cause people to write this, and give them insight into things that they could not know apart from God. In the same way, the Spirit gives us insight. I think somehow we are very arrogant to think, well, yes, Paul needed help when he was writing those epistles, but we don't need help understanding it. Well, that doesn't quite make sense, does it? The Spirit caused Paul to write those things. The Spirit can give us insight. It's the same Spirit, by the way. He knew what he caused to be written, so he knows what is to be conveyed. I fear that oftentimes we think that we can understand the Bible on our own, or at the very least with the help of some other human beings, pastors, commentators, scholars. Sometimes I think that our reading of the Bible is much like our prayer. We just sort of dash into the presence of God without any preparation. Um, I, I've told you before that the picture comes to mind is from the Seinfeld show with Kramer, the way he would always just sort of skate into the room, that I think we just sort of skate into God's presence and, and here we are. And I think we do the same thing when we read scripture. It's like, okay, uh, need to knock off a few chapters, read a couple chapters, as though this is something we can do and comprehend on our own, that we do not need the work of the Spirit. And I, I think that that is a false view. I think we also forget that we will not fully comprehend all of Scripture in this life. In the same way that the writers who wrote, I don't think they fully comprehended what they were writing, we will not fully comprehend what is written either. And that's okay. I mean, that is absolutely okay. Because, and this is the fourth thing, the purpose of Scripture is not simply to convey information 
for the sake of us knowing, so that we can know certain things, it teaches us for the sake of living, for the sake of doing. And so it isn't how much information can I amass in my brain from Scripture, but what do I learn from Scripture that I am now putting into practice in my life? And that's why it's okay not to comprehend it all, because what we do comprehend, we need to put into practice. I've said before, when we get to heaven, the entrance exam is not a theological exam. It is not how much theology do you know, how much of the Bible do you know. It is the grace of God, but it is what have you put into practice in your life as God's child. Now let's look specifically at the book of Revelation. Why, why, why do we have difficulties with it? First of all, we need to remember that the language of the book of Revelation is the language of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. What is being described here is, in essence, the consequences for breaking the covenant. I don't know much about the law, but I do know that oftentimes when you sign a contract, you have a penalty clause. If you have a contractor who's going to do work for you, and you say, okay, this work must be done by November 30th. If it is not completed satisfactorily by November 30th, then these will be the consequences. Either you don't get paid, or you will actually have to pay me money back. There will be a penalty. Well, when God initiated a covenant with Israel, he told them, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you break the covenant, here are the consequences. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. And so the language is from the old covenant. It is from that covenant that was broken. Jesus, in the Lord's Supper and in his life and death, initiates a new covenant. But the old covenant is being done away with as the sanctions are being poured out on those who broke the covenant. Also, symbols are used a lot in the book of Revelation. They are a powerful way to convey a message. We are far too modern, I think, in that we don't want... Well, we're contradictory. We like to watch TV, we like the movies, we like the images. But when someone's conveying information, don't, you know, don't do this fancy stuff, just give us the facts. Don't do symbolism, don't do allegory, metaphors. Just tell us what it is that we need to know. Well, in the book of Revelation... We find a lot of symbols because symbols oftentimes are more powerful than simply a direct statement. What John uses, or one of the things that occurs as his use of symbols, is that things are not as they appear. That you see something, but the reality behind it is actually quite different. So the church in Smyrna, in chapter 2, appears poor, but it is in fact rich. Not literally but in terms of the things that are important. The church in Sardis in chapter 3 has a reputation for being alive. You look at it, things are going well. In fact, it is dead. What appears to the naked human eye, looking at human history, is something actually quite different than what is really going on. To be helpless, to be weak, hunted, poor, defeated churches or congregations of Jesus the Lamb is in fact proof that Christ has overcome. It's like, well, no, I don't get that. Well, that's where the symbolism comes in. It shows us that what we're seeing is actually not the real thing. 
that the truth is behind it. That those who look as though they are weak are in fact strong. We've seen this before, but in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as a lion, the lion of Judah. He's also referred to as a lamb. And not simply a lamb, by the way, a lamb that has been killed. Now, the pictures used are not simply because they are pretty pictures or gruesome pictures, but because this language has already been established in the Old Testament. So when we read this, we can't say, oh, yes, I, I, I get the National Geographic Channel. I know what a lion is. I know what a lion does. Therefore, I understand this. No, you need to go back to the Old Testament and see what it is that God says there about lions and about the Lion of Judah. And you're like, yes, and I've actually seen animals being killed on TV, on the Discovery Channel or on National Geographic. So, yeah, a lamb that's been killed, I get that. No, you need to go to the Old Testament and look at when lambs were killed on the night of Passover, for example, the various burnt offerings. Then you begin to get a picture of what it is that John is saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. We should understand two things, I think, about symbolism. First of all, all of creation is symbolic. I've said that before, but I don't know that that has penetrated our thinking. Creation is a revelation of God. We are here to reveal who God is. And in that sense, we are symbolic. We reflect his glory. We reflect his nature. And those who are human are made in his image. This is highly symbolic. And secondly, symbolism is in terms of analogy, not in terms of this for that. I think we, like, we prefer that, you know, this equals that. Oh, I get that kind of symbolism. No, that's not actually what happens, particularly in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, a symbol can actually refer to several things at the same time. Not simply a one-for-one -one correspondence. Those who write about the book of Revelation, I think, oftentimes have systematized it. And they say, okay, when you see this, it means this. And they just sort of go down the line like, if you know these symbols, then you've got it worked out. Um, no, I, I think it's much more than that. And for me, as I go through, and particularly in chapter 20, I'm struck by the force of symbols. How that they convey something much more powerfully than, than mere words can. So, for example, if I say to you, well, the first six verses, this is what it says. Satan is bound. He can no longer deceive the nations. So the gospel can go out. You're like, okay, I got that. But that's not what God chooses to say. Instead, he says, the dragon, one who destroys. That ancient serpent, one who deceives. The devil, one who slanders. Satan, one who accuses, this is who is bound with a great chain and thrown into the abyss. I think we would just say, well, yeah, the devil's been tied up. And we would miss the force of what is being said. I, I think it is a part of our age, the modern age, that symbolism doesn't work for us. And I think that's one of the reasons why we struggle at times, get frustrated with the book of Revelation. I would also say to you that the Bible is not a manual or a textbook. It was not written primarily to convey information, but to tell us about God, to reveal to us the person of God. And living when and where we do, we expect things to be spelled out. We buy a new piece of technology 
and there's a manual. And so the manual will tell us what to do. Of course, if you're like me, and different ones of you have confessed the same thing, so I'm not alone here, generally we don't read the manuals. You know, we just, hey, I, I can do this, I know what to do. When do we read the manuals? When we get in trouble. Okay? And so, I think many people, even Christians, like, hey, I've got this figured out, I know what to do, I'm going to live my life, and then something happens, well, let's see what the manual says. And, and, and what, what part of the Bible, and I've had people call me up, uh, David, what part of the Bible can I find this, for this particular situation? That's not how the Bible is to be used. It is not a manual. It is not a textbook. It is a revelation of God. And what does it tell us about God? God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That is, we find unity, but we find diversity. And it is diversity more than just simply the fact that there are three persons in God. When we look at creation, I think we see the diversity of God in his creation. The dizzying variety of plants and flowers, animals, even human beings, how we are all so different. We who are made in the image of God are so different. You're like, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means to me is that God is a God of tremendous diversity. That if you took all the human beings that have ever lived on this planet and put us you know, all together, we still do not reflect all the different aspects of who God is. We talked about this in Sunday school several weeks ago, how that God has given to each of us certain abilities, certain callings. And yet, each of these callings reflects one aspect of God. But we all have different callings, so we're reflecting different aspects of who God is, the creator and ruler of all. And yet, this is what I find amazing. God is a God of diversity, God is diverse, and yet we want him to speak one way and one way only. We want the Bible to all be the same, basically. Um, and instead what we find are history books, and then we find uh, directions in terms of rituals for sacrifices, the book of Leviticus, which is difficult for some people. We find a record, genealogies. We have songs, and, and they're not all the same. We have 150 of them that are recorded. We have sayings in the book of Proverbs. We have a love story in the Song of Solomon. And we've got prophets, and some are long and some are short. And, and then we get to the Gospels, and we have four Gospels, not one. I mean, what's that about? I mean... Why couldn't they just sort of condense it into one? I mean, after all, there was only one Jesus. Why do we have four stories? And then the epistles, they're all so different. Well, I think this reflects the diversity of God. I, I find it somewhat amazing and frustrating to me that people have a preconceived notion or idea or opinion that God is boring. I don't know if you've ever heard this or ever thought this, but that God is boring. He's always right. He's always good, never makes a mistake, never changes. Huh, what? How boring. And yet, when they come to the Bible, which is anything but boring, because it's got all this diversity of different styles of writing, we're like, well, I don't like that. I want it all to be the same. I think if most people could rewrite the Bible, it would be about ten pages long, maybe. And it would pretty much be a story, straightforward, and that's it, and let's go home. And, and to deal with just all the dizzying 
just diversity in scripture. I mean, you can tell who wrote certain books because of the style of the writing. Paul has a different style than Peter. And, well, then how is it still the Bible? Yes, because the spirit caused them to write this. But who they are as people comes through. I think the attitude that people have toward the Bible, if we could translate it into another realm, would be to say that all music should be the same. All music should be the same. And in fact, if you got really, really technical about it, there should only actually only be one song in the whole world. Okay? And, and if you get really, really picky, maybe only one note. That's how people think of God, I think. They don't see the diversity. And they come to Scripture and they're like, why couldn't God just spell it out? Why, why does it have to be all these differences? Why isn't it all accessible? Well, I'm not a musician. We have musicians here. But you know what? Some music is simple. It's quiet. It's accessible. You get it. And other music isn't. Other music, you have to listen to it over and over and over and over again. And, and always you hear something new. This reflects who God is. And that's what Scripture reflects. So it is wrong for us to expect the book of Revelation to be like the Gospel of John. Or to be like the book of Genesis. No, it is, it is a book unto itself. And it is quite different. Having said that, we must bow before the authority of Scripture. Now, we live in a postmodern world in which, at least in the academy, texts have no authority. Anything written has no authority. The authority is in the reader, not in the writer. So when we come to church and we say, this is the word of God, we should bow before the authority of Scripture, there's part of us that says, no, I'm not doing that. There's part of us that says the Bible will only mean what I think it means. No. This is God's word and he is the final authority. And having said all that, we must bow before God, the creator and sustainer of all things. We must bow and worship before the Lord God Almighty. In chapter 4, when John is given his first vision of heaven, what he sees, what he hears, is worship, worship, worship. The four living creatures, the 24 elders. Um, the 24 elders, for example, are described as doing four things. First of all, they fall down before him who sits on the throne. That is, they acknowledge who he is. And as I asked when we went through... The, Chapter 4. Can you ever imagine yourself falling down on the floor before anybody? I don't. I mean, we are so self-confident, so self-sufficient. The idea of falling down before someone and worshiping seems foreign even to us. They worship him who lives forever and ever. It is not enough that they fall down before him, but they worship him. They say to him, you you alone are worthy. They, give, they have crowns. They throw their crowns at his feet. And why do they do that? They acknowledge all authority. Everything comes from him. They're simply returning to him what was given from him. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They praise God for who he is and for what he has done. And so should we. 
If there's one thing that I hope you learn from the book of Revelation, it is the place of worship among God's people. That we are here to worship Him today, but you know what? What we are doing now, in an imperfect way, is being done right now in the presence of God in heaven. God's people on earth or in heaven, they are geared, they are to be geared toward worshiping God. But this means acknowledging his authority. And again, I fear because of our arrogance and our self-sufficiency, even worship is no longer many times about God, it's about us. It's about what we get out of it. Perhaps even about what we learn. Oh, I'm glad I went to church today, I learned something. Well, I, I hope you do learn something, but that's not our primary purpose in coming together. It is that we might bow before God and worship him. So reminded of a passage where Saul disobeyed God and Samuel chastised him and said, why did you disobey? And basically he said, I disobeyed in order to obey. And Samuel says to him, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Why would we rebel? Because we think we know how things are going to end up. And God says, go this way. And we're like, no, that, no that's, that's not going to end out right. I'm going to go this way. We rebel because we think we know. Divination. We think we know how it's going to turn out. And he concludes by saying, an arrogance like the evil of idolatry. I know better than God. And my confidence is in my own knowledge, my own ability. God says, no, this is the way. Walk in this way. And we say, no, actually, no. And we come to the Bible and we're like, eh, why all this? I mean, why, why all this diversity? I, I just want to be a good person. I just want to live a good life. Because this is the revelation of who God is. Now, for a few minutes, let's continue in Revelation 20. We will look at verses 7 through 10. But before we do that, let me bring something to your attention that you may not have noticed last week. In the first six verses of chapter 20, John does something he has not done previously in the book of Revelation. This is the first time he's done that. He looks into the distant future. Up to this point, John has been writing about things that are going to happen within five years. Things that must shortly take place. What must soon take place. That's what the whole book of Revelation has been about. The fall of Jerusalem is going to happen in 70 AD. But in chapter 20, John goes beyond that. Because the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, is going to be bound for a thousand years. As we said, it's more than a thousand years. It's an extended period of time. So now he takes us into the future. And then he says, at the end of that time, he will be released. So now we're no longer in the first century as John is writing this. He's not talking about things that are going to happen within his lifetime. He's looking into the distant future. And in verses 7 through 12, what he does is flesh out what is going to happen after the thousand years when Satan is released. So look, if you would, as I read verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. 
In number, they will be or they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, we are told that he is bound so that he will not deceive the nations anymore. So once he's let loose, what do you think the devil is going to do? He is going to seek to deceive the nations. And, and to what purpose? I mean, what is this all about? What thrill, what motivation does Satan have in seeking to deceive the nations? That they might make war against God. Well, you can't make war against God. I mean, God's in heaven. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. You make war against his people. And human history is a record of that war. It begins at the very beginning. The first two human beings born in the world, Cain killed Abel. Because Abel worshipped God as he should and Cain didn't. And human history is a record of Satan seeking to destroy God's people. So when he's let out for a little while, what do you think he's going to try to do? He will seek to deceive the nations, gather them for battle. And he uses two Old Testament names that are in Ezekiel's prophecy, Gog and Magog. And this, I think, is a good example of how Old Testament language is used as not a direct correspondence. In Ezekiel's account, Gog is the name of the prince. Magog is the name of his country. We don't have that here. Here the names are just put Gog and Magog. And why is that? Because they both represent hostility against God's people. And so as John is writing this, that Satan is going to be let loose and he is going to deceive the nations to make war against God's people and God's camp. What would be a good Old Testament name to symbolize that? Well, Gog and Magog. Gathered together for war to make war against God's people. And they are described in number like the sand on the seashore. We are told that they march the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Um, we shouldn't think this again is literal, that somehow you have you know, troops marching across you know, the planet. No, I think it, what it speaks is hostility against God's people wherever they are. Persecution will break out. But God will be victorious and he will destroy those who oppose him. You see, the gospel of the kingdom will go out for a long time. But then Satan will be released and he will again make war against God's people. Now, certain questions come up. The first one is, how can this take place? I mean, it's quite amazing. If Satan cannot deceive the nations for a thousand years, for a long period of time, and then he gets out of jail, he's let out of his prison, and then it seems like that. He's got people on his side like the sand of the seashore. How is that possible? Or the question might be asked, why does God allow this to happen? Okay, the second question I will not pretend to be able to answer. Why God allows things to happen, I do not know. I do find it somewhat ironic that people say, don't talk about predestination, talk about free will. And you say, okay, free will, and God's going to let this happen. Why does God let that happen? Why doesn't he stop people from doing bad things? Well, come on, make up your mind. Can't have it both ways.
But let's go back to the first question. I think it is a bit easier. How can Satan deceive the nations after such a long time in prison? Because he finds in the human heart an ally, a ready ally. Isn't it amazing that if, in fact, Satan has been tied up for a thousand years, well, now two thousand years, and I believe he has, that he can't deceive the nations, we're still doing a pretty rotten job of, of following God, aren't we? People still do the things they want to do. So you, when Satan gets out of jail and he says, who's on my side? He has an ally in the human heart. Many years ago, uh, I preached from Ephesians chapter 6, and it sort of sticks out in my mind because uh, I preached on the passage that says, put on the whole armor of God. And if you're familiar with the passage, put on the breastplate and the helmet and the shield and the sword and all this. And, and basically, put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against what Satan is going to throw at you. And I had two individuals come up to me after the service, and in essence, they both said the same thing in different ways. They said, you know what, you, you talk about being prepared to fight against what's coming against you. What do you do about the person in the armor? They both said to me, I, you know, I'm not worried about the devil. I'm worried about me. Because the reality is in the human heart, Satan has an ally. Our hearts are much more prone to do wrong than to do right. Our hearts are much more prone to make war against God than they are to stand with him. It is only by the grace of God that, in fact, we stand with him. Let me just close here and something for you to consider. Scripture is the revelation of God. And we need to rethink, I think, its place in our lives, its authority in our lives. I think our attitude towards Scripture Would we not confess, if we could publicly, that sometimes it is very difficult to read Scripture, to find the time to do it, to find the desire to do it? And yet it is the revelation of God. But then we go through the genealogies with all the names, we go through Leviticus with all the sacrifices and the blood here and the blood there, come to Revelation 20 and it's like... We will not comprehend it all, but we are to know what Scripture says. We can't do it on our own. It requires the work of the Spirit. And then we are to put into practice what we, what we read, what we learn. Not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. This contains the Holy Scripture of God. This is God's revelation. It's not just another book. It's like, oh, what should I read today? Oh, maybe I'll read my Bible. No, it's not just another book. It is God speaking, and we should listen. One of the things that it tells us in Scripture is about His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How that He came to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, went for about three years of ministry, preaching, teaching, healing, by the way, if you go through the Gospels and you want to see the diversity of God, notice how it is that Jesus never says the same thing twice. When he's talking to different people, he says different things. He doesn't always heal the same way. 
Sometimes he touches someone, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he says, just go home, you're healed. Other times he gets mud and puts it on their eyes and has them wash it off. He doesn't do things just one way. The night before he was put to death, he did something quite amazing. He met with his disciples for a meal. And he said to them, listen, this is something I want you to do from now on. To remember me and my sacrifice. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood. And until the day we die, or until Christ comes back, whichever comes first, we are to remember his death and his sacrifice. And we do that in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Scripture. We confess that oftentimes we treat it as common and not as holy, not as sacred. Oftentimes we treat it as a manual rather than a revelation. And oftentimes we reject its authority and in its place we put our own. We thank you for the book of Revelation, for all its difficulties for all the symbols, for all the frustrations that we may have felt. We acknowledge it as scripture. And we thank you for what it tells us about you and about your son, that you are the Lord God Almighty. You are already victorious. And the Lamb has triumphed. Today we remember his death, which on the face of it would seem to be a defeat. In reality, it is his greatest victory that by his blood, by his broken body, by your grace, we become your children. May we remember this today as we remember his death together. We pray in Jesus' name.
Paul wrote to the Corinthians, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Stand, please, as we sing the doxology together. benediction is from the book of Hebrews and you know not all the benedictions are the same some are longer and some are shorter this is a longer one but a wonderful benediction may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.